Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, if you're not familiar with where to find things in the Bible. And we're going to be, as I said, in uh, chapters 18 and 19 today. Uh, as I've already mentioned, the, as, or has already been mentioned, you've got an email this week if you're on our email list, and as been mentioned at the, uh, the beginning of the service, this sermon falls solidly in the PG-13 category, so this is your last chance. You don't want to hear a PG-13 sermon. Uh, this is your last chance to get your kids out. <laughs> and if you're a guest, we don't do this too often. <laughs> Uh, and we certainly don't do it for the shock value. Uh, but the Bible's full of a lot of a lot of things. Uh, and you don't know it if you haven't read it. But there's a lot of stuff in there. And we just, uh, it's our habit here at CBC to just talk about the things that are next. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible at a time. And that's great because it gives you a fuel for the book of the Bible. Uh, but it's tough because it's next. And it's not always popular, it's not always what people want to talk about or what people want to hear, but it's there. Uh, God says it's there for our good, and so we, we preach the whole thing, whether it's popular or not. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we do justice to it in what we talk about today. And so we're going to be in, as I said, Genesis 18 and 19. There's a phrase that all of us have said before and that we start saying when we're very young. Uh, language changes over time. The things that you said when you were a teenager, the kinds of words that you used are different than the words that your parents and grandparents used about how you talked about things that were cool and the words that you used for cool. And I don't even know what the cool words are now. And when I attempt to use the words that are cool now, my kids immediately tell me, stop, don't do that. But there are uh, some things that don't change. There's a, a phrase, it's just three words. You said it when you were a kid. Your parents said it when they were kids. Your kids have said it. Your grandkids have said it. And the phrase is simply this. It's not fair. <laughs> your parent, have you ever heard that before? Did you ever say that when you were a kid? It's not fair. There is a, a built-in sense of justice that comes standard on every human being. And that is a good thing. God has, God has built us with a sense of justice. God has built into us a sense of what is, or a sense of fairness. Every one of us has it. That sense of justice and fairness is not always calibrated correctly. We see that in children from a very young age about what they deem to be unfair or not. So our sense of justice that's built into us, it needs to be calibrated, but it's there. It starts with a toy that someone takes from you when you're a kid, and it continues into adulthood as things are done to you that you do not think are right. And of course, there are many people that you have probably met who have said, uh, who have applied that sense of, of justice that they had inbuilt into them to, to God. They'll say something like, I couldn't believe in a God who, and then you fill in the blank with it. All of us have probably heard that before, right? 
I won't believe or I couldn't believe in a God who does X, Y, or Z. That's a version of our phrase, it's not fair. It is a struggle sometimes to align our sense of justice with God's. And if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand this is something that, that Christians have to grapple with. It's not like we read the Bible every day and we're just in lockstep harmony with it. There are things in the Bible, there are decisions that God makes, there are things that God does that we grapple to understand that don't seem to align with our internal sense of what is fair and what is not. And today we're going to see Abraham, we've been going through the book of Genesis together, we're going to see Abraham, the character that we've been looking at in the book of Genesis, wrestle with this very issue. About three weeks ago, we were looking at Abraham and Sarah as they received a visit from an angelic messenger. And in that visit from an angelic messenger, they hear the news that at the ages of 90 and 100, respectively, they are going to have a son. This is something that God had promised to them 25 years before that, something that they had struggled to believe this whole time, and finally, the Lord appears to them with these angelic messengers and tells them that it's time, this, year, this time, next year, you are going to finally have the son that I promised. And as Abraham is seeing on the, the, these uh, messengers on their way after delivering this message, they have one more thing that they want to tell him. And we can see what that is in verses 20 and 21 of Genesis chapter 18, if you're there. This is what the word of the Lord says in his word, in verse 20 of Genesis 18. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, if you're just reading this casually, or maybe you haven't read the rest of the Bible, it might sound here like there are things that God doesn't know. Like God has to go and investigate a report that's come to him. But I want to remind you that we've already seen things in Genesis where, where God uses languages that accommodate humans. God is here in human form. He is, uh, he is here talking with these two other angelic messengers. We've already seen that, that in, the, in the account of the Tower of Babel that God has to, to look down low. The Bible describes him as looking down low to see that this tower that they built to heaven as if he had to investigate. The Bible uses this language all the time, but the Bible also teaches that there is, there is not a fact in the universe that is outside of God's knowledge. God is omniscient, which means everything that can be known, he knows. Okay? But there's something else that's interesting here. It's, he's talking about the outcry that has come to him. And that Hebrew word for outcry is a word that we've seen back, way back at the beginning. When we were reading the story, when we were thinking about the story of Cain and Abel, do you remember anything where that word was used? The Bible actually tells us back in Genesis chapter 4 that, that Abel's blood that had been spilled by Cain cried out 
And what was it crying out for? It's crying out for justice. Cain has taken the life of his brother, and his blood is crying out for justice. We've already seen this word, and now we see it again here in this, in this instance. There is an outcry that has come to God's ears, as it were, in human terms, from Sodom and Gomorrah, and it is, again, another cry for justice. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, uh, it doesn't give us all the dialogue that, that, that goes between Abraham and the Lord and these angelic messengers. But what we do end up realizing is that with Abraham is that their intent is actually to destroy these cities. And Abraham has something to say about it in verse 23. Verse 23, the Bible says, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far, far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous spares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Now that's pretty fascinating, isn't it? That's pretty fascinating that, that Abraham is basically stepping back and saying, whoa, 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 <laughs> let's talk about this. There is an exchange here between a human being and God in which the human being is questioning the fairness or the justice of God's actions. We'll be able to talk about that more next week because uh, we're going to talk about this. We're going to be talking about this whole account in two sermons. Except this is the only PG-13 one. Okay, we'll go back to G, close to G next week. But, but. Uh, as, and we'll read this, this uh, passage a little bit more next week. But we, we see here Abraham negotiating it basically all the way down from 50 to 10. Starts at 50. For 50 righteous people, you wouldn't destroy the city, right? God says, no, we'll do that. So he just works it, works his, 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 works it all the way down to 10. And with that, with the negotiating complete, the angels go on their way. And when the angels, uh, now there's two angels, they arrive in Sodom. The first person they encounter at the city gate is Lot. And remember, Lot is, is Abraham's nephew. When the word of the Lord came to Abraham that he's going to make a great nation of him, he's going to give him this land, you're going to travel, I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go, just start, I'll lead you along the way. He takes Lot with him, and they have a little bit of uh, friction relationally between them. They're not getting along. And so Lot, Lot and Abraham choose to go their separate ways. So Lot has now been living in Sodom. And when these angels encounter uh, Lot at the city gate, they, he greets them. 
and they state their intent that they're going to stay in the town square that night. And immediately Lot is basically like, that is not a good idea. And he doesn't come out right and say why, but have you ever been watching a movie and there's like this ominous feel, like somebody goes into a town or something and there's something that doesn't feel quite right about this whole thing and then it turns out they're all zombies or something like that. Okay, so this is kind of the feel that we get while we're reading it. It's like there's a little bit of an ominous thing going on. We're wondering, well, why is, why is Lot so dead set on making sure that these guys don't sleep in the town square? And he finally convinces them to stay at his house. And then we're going to find out how sinister things actually are. That ominous feeling that we get as we read it, that's actually a true feeling. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 4. Before they lay down, the men, of the, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. Now, notice the way I read that verse, because the author is underscoring something for us here. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. So we're not talking about a few rogue actors here. We're not talking about a few bad apples. And sometimes we have the idea that these cities were gigantic metropolises, which they were not. These are, these are more like small towns, small fortified towns where everybody knew everybody. And, and everybody's there surrounding this house where these men are intending to stay for the night. Now look at verse 5. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Now that word know is a biblical euphemism for sex. Okay, so, so they're saying, You bring those visitors out to us, all of us, so we can have them. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Okay, we're on team Lot right now. This is wrong. This is, this is, this should, this is something that should not be done. And, and, and Lot seems to, be, seems to be pleading for the upholding of decency here in his town and respect and hospitality to his guests. Until we get to verse 8, in which he says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. That's horrifying. That ought to, that ought to put a, a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach to see a man come out and say, Hey, hey, I'm providing, let me provide shelter to my guests. My guests are more important than my daughters. This is sick. 
So the Bible is, is delicate with what's going on here, but you get the point of what they want to have. And there's a reason that God intends to judge some. We see that Lot is a part of it. <coughs> so, fast-forwarding a little bit and summarizing some things for you. Again, we'll some, come back to some of these things as we continue to talk about it next week. The men of the city, all the men, young and old, every single one of them, surrounding the house, are not going to take no for an answer and things start to get violent and the two uh, angelic messengers actually reach out, grab Lot by the collar, as it were, and pull him into the safety of his own home. They then strike the people surrounding the house with blindness, and it seems like there's an added aspect to the miracle here because the Bible says that they're uh, struck with blindness and they're not able to find the door. Well, I mean, you can close your eyes and find the door eventually. Uh, but they're not able to find the rest. They're, so there's some, other, there's some other act of God here that basically prevents them from being able to gain entrance to the house. And it's this point that the men reveal to Lot that they have been sent by the Lord to destroy his hometown. And they instruct Lot that if there's anybody in this, uh, this town that is important to you, you need to make them aware of it. And the people that immediately come to their mind are, their two, are his two daughters' fiancés. The daughters that he has just offered to throw to the mob says, oh, yeah, we've got fiancés. Uh, we should talk to them. And these men don't take it seriously. And so nothing, nothing happens for them. They, they don't heed the warning that he gives them. And when morning comes, the angels urge Lot and his family to run for the hills. And we'll talk a little bit more uh, of next week about them kind of hesitating about doing that. But they tell them to run for the hills in the face of the impending judgment that comes. And as the sun rises, they're making their escape. The Bible tells us this in verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So the Lord's in there twice, emphasizing this is something he's doing. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And again, I know we're kicking some of these cans down the road to talk about next week, but we'll talk a little bit about that next week as well. Okay, we're going to keep going. Okay, you already feel a little icky? You should. Uh, it's not all comfortable in the Bible. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. So Lot's story doesn't have a redemptive ending. Uh, we'd like it to. We'd like it. He's just lost his girl's husbands and his wife. And they've run to a place called Zoar. And they're hiding out in a cave. And they can see the smoke rising from the valley that has just been incinerated. And we don't know what kind of time frame that we're, we're working with, how much time elapses, but 
the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 19 that Lot's daughters fear that now they're given their situation now. They've lost their fiancés. They've lost, they've lost this group of people. Uh, they've lost everything familiar to them. They're not going to have any children. And so they devise a plan to get their father drunk and then to have children by their father. Okay, so again, if you're our guest here today, Sorry, you picked this Sunday as your first. <laughs> uh, this is where we're at in the Bible. And these children that they end up having by their father grow up to become enemies of God's people. The end. That's, uh, that's Lot's story. So, as I've said, this is, you know... Maybe one of the top five most horrifying sections in the Bible. Like every sentence you read is another thing. But as we consider the point of this text, I want to go back to the question that Abraham asked back in chapter 18, verse 25. You were with us three weeks ago. You remember that that the text we read three weeks ago hinged on a question. That question was posed from God to Abraham. And that question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? That whole story, that whole account hinged on a question that the Lord poses to Moses. I believe this account also hinges on a question. And that question this time is one that Abraham points towards the Lord, in which he asks him, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You could substitute that word, substitute that word just with the word fair. Abraham receives the news of what God is going to do in judgment, and immediately he's asking the question, is that fair? Is that just? <laughs> Sodom's residents are acting in horrifying ways, and God's just judgment responds accordingly. This story is a, a demonstration in story form of what the Bible teaches about God's justice, about God's fairness in other places. What, what's taught in principle form elsewhere is taught in story form here. The Bible says things like this in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. It says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. This is teaching us that principle in story form. Now, as I said at the beginning of the message today, our sense of justice, our sense of fairness is not always calibrated with God's, but this Bible shows us what the rest of the Bible teaches us. It's the truth I want to impress upon you this morning and next week. God does what is just. We don't always 
feel it. We may have questions about it, struggle to understand it. God is presented to us in Scripture again and again as a God who unfailingly does what is just. There are two actions of God that are just in this text. We're going to look at one of them this week and one of them next week, and we're only going to look at some of the first one this week because, as you well know me by now, I have lots of things to say. But this, this morning I want us to see in the first place that God is just in his demonstration of judgment. God is just in his demonstration of judgments. And I want to highlight for you three actions we must take as we consider that truth. But we're only going to look at one of those actions in the rest of our time this morning. And it's this. So, so God does what is just. He's just in his demonstration of judgment. Here's, here's, here's an action that's our response to that. We must respond humbly to God's moral standards. Well, let me explain what I mean by that. As I've said now, passages of scripture like this are, are, are leave us conflicted. And they're intended to leave us conflicted, I think. We are conflicted, as I've said, by our own sense of what is just and right, which we're going to talk more about next week. But we're also conflicted as we encounter God's moral standards, particularly when God's moral standards behavior or behavior conflict with our own sense of morality. The issue here is we encounter this text and other texts in the scripture is not really about whether one is going to have a sexual ethic or not. It's about what sexual ethics we're going to have. It's not that Christians have a sense of morality. It's not that Christians have a sense of sexual morality and secular people don't. Both of us have standards of sexual morality, whether you're a secular person or whether you're a Christian person. The question is not whether you have a sense of morality, it's what is the basis for it? Everyone is working with a sexual ethic. The secular people from our culture could look at a passage of scripture like this and agree that certain sexual practices in this account are wrong, right? Most secular people would say gang rape is wrong. Most people would say that a lack of consent is wrong. Most people would say that trafficking your own children to a mob is wrong. Most people would say getting your father drunk to commit incest is wrong. And most people would say that. But then our culture would look about the practice of homosexuality and say, right, 
So I just want to say at the very beginning, we're all dealing with a standard of morality. The question is not whether we have one or not, it's where did I get it from? And is it true? Is our standard of morality derived from my own moral judgments that are very much culturally located? Or are my, my moral judgments located in something outside of me, unchanging? But the practice of homosexuality is a lightning rod in our culture. It is very much connected to this story, and so I want to talk about it specifically, briefly, in connection to our need to respond humbly to God's moral standards of sexual ethics. And I want to make two pretty simple points to you this morning about that. Number one, we're responding humbly to God's moral standards. What does that mean? First means we respond humbly to God's moral standards when we do not minimize them. When we do not minimize them. The Bible teaches that, that human beings are designed in a particular way to, a, to flourish as human beings made in God's image when we live in their, under God's intentions for us as human beings. The Bible teaches that there are many expressions of our sexuality that are outside of God's design for our sexuality. Our starting point needs to be the fact that, that, that sex is something that God designed for our joy and for our good. So the starting point for our sexual ethics needs to be positive. The sexual relationship is one that God has designed that is, is rich and full of all kinds of meaning and is something that is good. But that then does not mean that every expression of our sexuality that we can dream up is itself good. The expressions of our sexuality are good and right and true when they are expressed in the way God intended for them to be expressed. One of the expressions that the Bible tells us for that is out of bounds for sexual expression is homosexuality. I'm not going to attempt to prove that to you. That's not the point of the message this morning. But I don't believe the Bible is unclear on this point. Of course, this conflicts with our secular culture's religious commitment to sexual freedom. And so with the fear of being canceled hanging over our heads, we can be tempted to minimize God's moral standards. So we look to new and fresh readings of the Bible that are more permissive. And we have people as distinguished as Hebrew prof professors of Hebrew at Yale 
stating things very clearly that the problem in this text is not the sexual permissiveness, that it's not their expressions of sexuality, and there are many perversions of it. The problem is their lack of hospitality. Well, I should say so. I mean, this is not forgetting to, to get water for your guests. Now, there is a clear contrast. The Bible goes to great lengths to describe the hospitality that Abraham provides to these angelic messengers. We're killing the, 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 the calf, and we're preparing the meal, and we're watching them eat. We see the hospitality. There is a contrast of hospitality that is most certainly here. But that does not minimize the other sins that are, are there as well. The sins of Sodom were many. Homosexuality, rape, trafficking of one's daughters, incest. But you've got to tie yourself in knots to come to that sort of conclusion, particularly when the Bible offers its own commentary on this passage in Jude 7, when it says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It's hard to escape the Bible's own commentary on itself. So the point that I'm trying to make to you this morning is that God's moral standards of all kinds and God's moral standards for our sexuality and how it is expressed do not change because they are not rooted in what we happen to think is good for us in any given space and time. And I'll say this furthermore, we often are tempted to, 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 uh, to fudge on the boundaries of sexuality in the interests of love. But is it loving to promote that which God prohibits, understanding that he is a God who will judge. That is not love. And so the church must remain faithful to those moral standings, standards, believing that they are ultimately just, fair, and for our good, based on his design. And that's going to put us in conflict with the culture all the time. And it's going to make us second-guess ourselves. And that's fine. Second-guess yourself. But then check the Bible again. And go with it. Okay, so we respond humbly to God's moral standards when we refuse to minimize those moral standards. But secondly, and I'm going to try to make everybody in the world angry today. <laughs> secondly, we respond humbly to God's moral standards when we do not demonize those who do transgress. The church has sometimes acted as if there are some categories of sinners who are irredeemable.
will forgive fornicators, adulterers, pedophiles, and porn addicts, but we draw the line there. And I think that's hypocrisy. Is there really a difference between a person who feels the pull of same-sex attraction and a person who feels the pull of porn? I don't think there is. And I believe the church can be a place where two things coexist that everyone says can't go together. I believe the church can be a place that continues to hold a biblical sexual ethic and at the very same time embraces those who are confused, struggling, or even outright denying that ethic. People say that can't be done, and I say that's the very thing we're supposed to do. Whether you like it or not, there are people here this morning with us who are same-sex attracted. Whether you like it or not, there are people here this morning dealing with gender identity issues. Parents, we've got to get this right. Sometimes we think, if I can just make all the right moves, give them all the right books and all the right teachings, make sure I manage their friends, what videos they're watching, what shows they watch, what music they're listening to, if I can keep them out of this school and in this school, or if I can create a compound where we can all live and they don't learn about any of this stuff, and it won't happen to my kids. And I just want to tell you, okay, we should be faithful as parents, raising our children to the best of our ability, but you can't change hearts. And you can, you can take your children and your family and live on the, 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 the sharpest, tippiest top of a mountain, but they don't talk to anyone and do anything, and they've still got sinful hearts, like you. And if we don't do this right, we are going to send a message to our kids that you can talk to us about anything but that. You can struggle with anything but that. There's going to be no space for them to come to us and say, thinking about this, feeling this, saw this, and not sure what to do about it. You've got to get this right. Whether you like it or not, there are people who are wondering if they could come to this church and explore the good news, or if this church is a place that is safe for only a specific kind of sin. And here's where I'm here's why I'm saying this. The LGBTQ plus stuff is all around us. 
And the people who are, are vying for that and advocating for that are loud, and they're mad at us. I understand why. You should too. And if you watch the news too much, you start thinking about them in political terms rather than Christian terms. And they become the enemy. So some of you need to snap the news off. And put the Bible on a little bit more. Because those people are the mission, like everyone else. And you can't reach people with the gospel that you hate. Have you heard of Jonah? That's us. We got whole churches full of Jonas. I'll tell anyone but them. God, save anyone but the people I hate. I don't even know where I'm at my news right now. <laughs> Here's the thing. The church ought to be a place where all kinds of people with all kinds of disordered desires, because that's what we're talking about here. If we want to say that disordered desires is just this one thing. But every single one of us has disordered desires. Every single one of us has searched out, thirsted for sexual experiences outside of God's design. Every one of us. All of us are dealing with disordered desires. And the church ought to be the place where people with disordered desires can come to Jesus before those disordered desires are changed and learn what it means to follow in his footsteps, even with those desires. So we seek for God to change our actions. And then one of the things that I pray more now than I did when I was younger not just change my actions, but will you change my heart? So that not only am I not doing the wrong things, but I don't want to do the wrong things. That's another level right there. All right. We're going to pick this up a little bit more next week. And as this shakes out questions that you have, we'll be happy to talk with you about it. One of the difficulties of a sermon like this is, is like there's a million things I could say. And you may be thinking, well, but what about this and this? And what do you mean by this? Let's talk about it. Okay, but here's where I want to leave it this morning. The gospel is the good news that even though every single one of us falls woefully short of God's moral standards in every area of our lives, Jesus saves. So let me commend an attitude for you as Christians that we ought to take. This attitude is found in 
1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. A lot of our issues, how we deal with sin, would change if we committed that verse to memory. And you looked at the people you're tempted to hate and said, no, wait a minute. The Lord Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm foremost. Thinking that way takes the target off of people's backs. Levels the playing field and gives us a chance to love them. John Newton was a slave trader for many, many, many years. When he was saved, he was one of the few Christians who became an abolitionist. You'd think being a Christian would, would save you from being a slave trader. But apparently, that didn't happen in our country for a really long time. That's another story. But when he was saved, he realized the error of his ways when he was an older man. He said this, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I I'm a great sinner. And Jesus is a great Savior. So as we think about our own sexual failures, Satan brings those things up to remind us of what we've done and how we failed. And tell him that Jesus is a great Savior. That you can't out sin his grace. If you're here with us this morning and you wonder, does Jesus care about people like me? Do Christian people care about people like me who've done what I've done? Or to do what I do? Let me tell you the answer to that question is. ground is level. One of our other pastors was reminding me of this week. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus. You could repent of your sins this morning and receive the grace and forgiveness that Jesus freely offers you. And we would love to talk more with you about it. Let's pray again. Lord, we have talked about some very difficult things this morning. Sobering things, things that we, we struggle with, things that bother us, things that are ugly. We believe, though, that your word is profitable in every way for us, that it forces us to confront things we would rather not think about. Lord, I pray, uh, my prayer for our church 
is that we would remember that no matter where we've been or what we've done, we have a great Savior. And that you came specifically to die for people like us. And then, we pray that you would help us to love all sinners with the good news of Jesus that's changed our lives. And we ask it in his name.